So turn with me to John chapter 12. John 12. So I don't know if you've ever been in my house or seen our bedroom or anything. If you have, that would, be give you, that would kind of give you a general layout of the room. But when you walk, we have double doors. When you walk through the door, the bathroom is on the other end and to the right of the bedroom, okay? Now, I sometimes will come to bed after my wife, so she's very gracious, and, and we'll do this if the other comes to bed later. We'll leave the bathroom light on and then partially close the door because if we don't do that, then there's a possibility of stumbling to get to the bathroom, and we don't want to do that. So we turn the light on, close the door most of the way, just not all the way, and it's enough light to be able to see. My problem is when I come to bed, I can the, the door's open, the light's on, and I'll, I'll find my way to the bathroom. And when I'm done and everything I'm doing, now I've got to make it to the other side of the bed. And I'm not going to crawl all over my wife and wake her up, so I have to turn the light out open wide the door, and just pray that the moon is shining brightly enough so I don't trip and fall on my way around the bed to the other side. Generally, though, the moon isn't shining real brightly. There have been times in which I have stumbled in the darkness, but I want you to know that light is my friend, and I need that light. Tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus being that light and that he has actually called us out of the darkness into this light, but there's a problem that we have encountered, that the world has encountered, and when we look at that, what that problem is, first take, it's going to shock you. I can guarantee you that. It's going to shock you, and you're going to read that, and you're going to think, what? Did I read that wrong? Surely there's a catch in here somewhere. What is he talking about? We are going to talk about that somewhat. But church, I want you to know that that when you read this, that was you lost in the darkness, desperately in need of light, just like me praying as I'm walking around the bed. Okay, where am I going? Where am I heading? Am I bumping into anything? And God has a plan as he brings this light to bear on our life to direct us. I need us to understand right now that John, throughout his book, he uses this metaphor of light and darkness for such a good reason, because we desperately need light, not just to physically see, but we need spiritual light, if you will, the light of truth to direct us in every aspect of life. Because the world walks around in the darkness. I used to walk around in the darkness thinking I was actually in the light. And I stumbled along the way a lot wondering why is the Christian life so hard? I don't think I like it very much. Not realizing I was walking in the darkness. And so as we go through this this, uh, study tonight, I want us to realize that this light that we're talking about is not just for me to be saved. This light is every day so we can see the pathway that God has for us. And I just want to encourage you that if you are going through a situation in your life, you have a hard decision to make, you have a a, a difficult uh, relationship, maybe at work, that you're trying to work through, 
and you're just wondering how on earth do you keep yourself from slugging this person in the face and keeping your Christian witness, the light is going to direct us in those difficult situations where we're wondering how on earth do I do this? The light, Jesus himself, his teachings, that is what directs us. Not just to be saved, but how to do this Christian life altogether. So we're going to talk about light and darkness. To do that, though, I want us to begin by looking a little bit at what we looked at last week. Jesus said this. If you were to see, look there in verse 23. Jesus replies. Remember the Greeks come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And we realize that this idea of seeing Jesus was more than just, hey, I just wanted to see what he looked like. Like, does he have a beard and long hair? Uh, does he have a crucifix around his? I'm just kidding. The, you know, what is he like? No, it's, I want to see Jesus to get to know him. Who is he? That was, their, that was their quest. And Jesus responds in this way. Verse 23, you ready? He says, the hour has come. That is a very um, versatile, a very, uh, John uses this phrase, the hour. It, not only in the gospel, but also in his letter. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, do you remember when Jesus was glorified? Because most of us think that he was glorified you know, when he rose from the dead. That was a glorious occasion, right? The grave could not hold him. But the truth is, he goes on to talk about this hour in which he's going to be glorified in verse 30, 32. What does he say? But I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. When was Jesus lifted up? Is that when we praise him, we lift Jesus higher? No, we, he was lifted up on the cross, just like Moses' serpent. The bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Whoever looked to the bronze serpent, if they had been bitten by a poisonous snake, they would be instantly healed. Even so, the Son of Man will be lifted up. Whoever looks to him, believes in him, will have everlasting life. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus way back in chapter 3. So, Jesus is saying that when he's lifted up, when he's crucified, because of verse 30, he's referring to his death, he's going to draw all men to himself. That's when he's going to be glorified. Now, we need to realize that you cannot separate the crucifixion of Jesus from his resurrection. You just can't do it. Jesus had to rise from the dead because a crucifixion without a resurrection is powerless. And a resurrection without a crucifixion is pointless. Let me just say that one more time. A, re a crucifixion without a resurrection is powerless. And a resurrection without a crucifixion is pointless. There's no need for it. Why? Because Jesus had to die for my sins, but ultimately to conquer them through the resurrection. That's the power. The, cruces, the cross is the point. And so, therefore, they must be seen together. So, Jesus was going to be glorified at the cross and then ultimately through his resurrection. This is how he was going to be glorified. So, here's what I want to do. I want you to just imagine, you can close your eyes if you need to do this, but what does glory look like? Because when you're glorified, that means you receive glory. Jesus on the cross received glory. What does that look like? If you were to close your eyes, what does glory look like? Is it blue or is it green? 
Is it big or is it small? Can you picture it in your mind? (laughs) Can anybody picture it in their mind? What does glory look like? Moses understood what glory looked like. Remember when he went up on the the Mount, uh, uh, Mount Sinai and he beheld the glory? He actually begged God that he would see the glory of God, and he did. And as he re- God revealed his glory, God said certain things like, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am a God full of mercy and compassion and so on. When Moses came down, his face had changed. Do you remember what that was? It was so different that he had to wear a veil over his freak. Man, that would be like freaky. When he came down, it says that his face glowed. It's interesting, kind of comical, really, because the in the Latin Vulgate, Jerome took the word for uh, radiant, and he mistranslated it in the Latin to say horns. And so in the Middle Ages, when they relied so much on the Vulgate, they drew pictures of Moses coming down Mount Sinai with horns on his head rather than glory. On his face. Just if you were wondering why, when you see some of these paintings, Moses has horns, it's for that reason. Well, he didn't come down the Mount Sinai with horns, he came down with his face glowing. See, when I think of glory, I think of radiance, I think of light. You have a, you got that idea? I think of light. At the cross, Jesus is going to be illuminated, if you will. He's going to be filled with glory. He's going to be glorified. And he will ultimately at that moment be the light of the world, drawing all men to himself. Now, I'm going to begin by reading in verse 34. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to look at this because Jesus talks about light and darkness in the beginning, light and darkness in the middle. And then he says something so very peculiar. And you're going to ask questions. I already warned you about that and we're gonna to need to look at this so but let's let's get this idea why do we need to walk in this place what's the importance of this are you ready here we go verse excuse me I, verse 35 then jesus told them you're going to have the light just a little while longer walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. That was me trying to cross my bedroom. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. And of course, as you know, daughters of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Now, understand them. Them is not the Jews. Them now is the crowd. Jesus knows there's something wrong in this crowd. The crowd is walking in darkness. And before he is crucified, remember what the crowd chanted on Passover day? Crucify him, crucify him. See, he's ready for this. He's giving them one last warning as he speaks now. But even after Jesus had done all of these miraculous signs in their presence... Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the synoptics anyway tell us this, even there that day, he did miracles. He did miracles even on Palm Sunday. 
So they witnessed these miracles in their presence. They still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Now this verse is found in Isaiah 53 verse 1. It says this, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, now listen to this, he, he is referring to God. He has blinded their eyes. He has deadened or calloused their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, that's repentance, and I would heal them. And I understand, and if you're listening to that and saying, what, God would do that? I don't get it. Hang on, we'll get there in just a bit. uh, uh, Verse 41, Isaiah saw this, excuse me, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Verse 40 is found in Isaiah 6, and we're going to get there. But Isaiah saw this, he saw Jesus' glory, and he spoke about him. Yet, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would, they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. John is saying this. John talks about two of those leaders by name, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were leaders. I assume John is talking about them. I do appreciate in The Chosen, the very end of season one, where Nicodemus has been challenged by Jesus. And Jesus says, look, we are going now to Judea. Come with us. Do you remember? And where is Nicodemus? He's behind a corner, and he's weeping. I just thought that is so beautiful. It so pictures the heartache and the decision that he is needing to make, and he can't go. Why? Because he fears being kicked out of the synagogue. And at that moment, he wanted the praise of men more than the praise of God. And he's weeping. And the at least... And and the Bible doesn't say he did this. The chosen, they write it in, but he leaves them some money, remember? So if I spoiled that for you, I am so sorry. But what what an amazing picture, peering into Nicodemus' heart, the struggle that he is having as a religious leader, but he loved the praise of men. And church, I'm just going to tell you that, yes, the world struggles with this, but even some of us Christians, we, we struggle with this idea of truly confessing Christ in the marketplace, wherever we're at. Why? Because what will people think of me? Christian leaders in politics. I'm so grateful that more of them are being outspoken, but many of them will keep their mouths shut. Why? Because if they claim to be Christians, the spotlight comes on them. And I tell you what, they will be, to some degree, crucified. And they fear that. 
and they fear the, for their reputation. To some degree, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So, I mean, I, I'm understanding where these leaders are coming from. I hope we can. We have been there, whether we admit it or not, we have been there. And, and Jesus, excuse me, John goes on to tell, tell us more. He says, then Jesus cried out. When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. Who would that be? That would be the Father. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. Oh, but listen, listen. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. Now listen, that very word which I spoke, which I spoke, will condemn him at the last day. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you do not believe, you will perish. Those are Jesus' words. Those words will condemn him at that last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me. As we look at, at this passage here, Jesus is being lifted. He's about to be lifted up on the cross and the light, because he's the light, will no longer be with them. As a matter of fact, if you were to back up several verses to verse 31, he says, "This is it's the hour. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be literally cast out. It's, my version says driven out. That's fine. I'm not going to suggest he's driven out of the world, but he's driven out. He's driven away. Ultimately, if we're going to trust that he will be driven out of this world, but we're going to need to look at that in just a moment. These two things are going to happen at the cross and throughout the ages. Now has come this time. It's the hour, the hour for Jesus to be glorified. Can I just ask, by the cross, how has judgment ever come upon the world? Think of it this way. Why did Jesus have to even go to the cross? He had to go to the cross because Mike Curtis and a few other people, like all of you here, sinned. That's why he had to go to the cross. God had to step out of heaven because Mike Curtis sinned. And for God to rescue me and bring me to himself one day, forever and ever, throughout eternity, Jesus had to die on the cross. So here's what the cross represents. World, you're lost in sin. You are so lost in sin, I need to send my son, my only son, because I love you and I want you to be with me. He's going to have to die for your sin. The cross tells me that I have sinned and the only way to rescue me, this is how deep my sin is. 
God had to die for me. Wow. Wait, wait, wait. Not maybe, maybe my enemy. Let my enemy die for me, okay? That, that, that that's a little better. No, 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 no. Not nearly enough. Your sin is so heinous. My sin is such an affront to the holiness of God. The only sacrifice that can remedy that sin, how deep and ugly that it is, is the very death of the Son of God. Does that not tell us that I am so entrenched in my sin, that my sin is so bad that Jesus had to die for me? That's the judgment that will come. Judgment is a statement. It's a sentence of generally guilty. That's ha that happened at the cross. God had to die for me. Now, it says, the prince of the world, who is Satan, will be driven out. I need, you to, I need us to realize here that Jesus, when he is crucified, he's being glorified. If you want to picture it in symbolic form or just like in your mind, light emanating from that cross and it reverberates then throughout time, throughout history. And what that light does is that it dispels the darkness. That's what light does. When you go into a dark room, you turn the light on. Unless your wife is asleep, then you do not do that. But you generally turn the light on, and what happens to the darkness? It flees. If your light is bright enough. And trust me, this light at the cross was bright enough. The darkness flees. Satan, the prince of darkness, the prince of this world, when the light is turned on, begins to flee. Wherever that light is shown, shined, something like that, the darkness is no more. Now, follow me carefully here. Jesus says, you have only a little bit of time to believe in me because then... The light is gone. Walk while you still have the light. Wait, wait, wait a second, Jesus. So after you die and you're gone and the light is no longer here, then we're all just going to walk in darkness? I don't get it. How on earth will we ever be able to see? Now let's look at this verse 36. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. Can we turn the lights off right now? I want you all to get out your cell phones. Most cell phones generally have a way to turn a flashlight on. We do still have some light, but I, I think this is okay. If this were pitch black... It would be difficult to walk around. Don't, don't turn your flashlights on quite yet. So here's, here's what Jesus did. He says, if you believe in me, you will become sons of light. See, he's going to go. The light's going to leave. But those who have believed in him, church, tell me one more time. What are they going to become? Sons of light. So here's what I want to do. Okay, the names that I called out. Turn your flashlight on. Okay. Turn the light. Don't shine it in my eyes. Turn it up. Straight up. Okay? Marley, is yours straight up? I, oh, wow, it is bright. Okay. 
It is bright. You can shine it around the ceiling a little bit. Okay, that, that's great. Just don't shine it in my eyes, okay? So those, Peter, those people, Peter, Cole, Carol, Marla, you are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Your name's just changed, by the way. You are shining your light, the truth that has, has changed your life. You're testifying to Jesus, and you're shining your light, and you are the Gospels. You are the ones that will forever hold up this light throughout the ages. Now, there are others like Peter and Paul and some others, that, and their light is, is shining too, but they're not going to tell the story like you four are. They will tell the way to salvation. They'll highlight Jesus. I don't want to knock them, but I do want to say that they are the truth. They are the gospels that reveal everything that Jesus said and did that was necessary for us, for our salvation. Okay, now the rest of you turn your lights on, but I need you to point them down. The, the others, keep your light up. The four of you, keep your light up. Okay? Now the others of you, I need you to turn your light down. You can see your feet. For those of you who do not have a light, I need you who do to shine it at their feet too. Okay. I, I can turn your light on for you, sweetie. You ready? Here we go. So we're going we're gonna to do this. Watch this. And then we're going to do that. And then right here. Point. Okay. Wow, yours is bright. Okay, man, we got a lot of light in this room, but the light is gone. Jesus has left, and those who have believed, those would be all of you with your flashlights on, you are sons and daughters of the light. Now, there are those of you who do not have a flashlight. You are the unbelievers. Sorry, I don't mean for that to be offensive. Okay? Thank you. My son-in-law is a true believer in Jesus. He just doesn't have a flashlight tonight. Okay. Okay, that's fair enough. All right. Tim, I do believe that you are a believer, but tonight you're not. Okay, so Pat, oh, I'm sorry. You do have a, what about Patty? Patty, do you have one too? Oh, you do. Do both of you have a light? Okay, and so if you don't, then you shine it at someone's feet, and you then are, in essence, shining the testimony of Jesus for them to see. Now, here is the problem, and that is because those who do not have the light and they walk in the darkness, we are told several chapters earlier in John chapter 3 that they actually like the darkness. Before you came to Christ, you liked the darkness. I get it. When I'm asleep, I like the darkness, but that's not what I'm talking about. You like to walk. These people like to walk in there. And the reason why they do is because the light that you have shows them that they're heading in the wrong direction. It shows them that the direction that they're heading is a pathway of sin and rebellion to the extent that God himself had to die for their sins. See, every time you share the gospel with people and you tell them Jesus died for you, here's what you're telling them. You're such a rotten sinner. Okay, you're not using those words. But your sin is so bad, God had to die for them. 
Most people, they don't, they don't see that. Oh, Jesus died? That's such a cute story. I like that one. Yeah, he died for your sin because you were in such rebellion against him, you were his enemy. See, that was Mike Curtis. And that light that some of you are shining, some of the others are shining upwards, and, and some of your lights are going to go out because you'll, you're going to move on. You're, you're going to die and go be with Jesus, but those lights shining upward will remain forever and ever because the word of God remains forever and ever. It will always give this world light. Okay, if we could have the lights on now. Thank you guys for doing that. The problem is, as you shine your light, men and women, men and women will run from your light. Men and women will hate your light because you're telling them by shining your light that God had to die for their sins. That's how bad it is for them. And they don't want to face that. And if they do, then they got to give up their sin. They have to give up their darkness because light, excuse me, because darkness cannot be in the presence of light. So what do they do? They run from the light. So here is what happens. And I'm going to draw an illustration. Take the illustration only so far. That's what I'm going to ask you to do, okay? Insects. They love the light. Your front porch light will prove that every night. They love it. Now, if you use a yellow light, it doesn't attract as many. But light attracts them. They love the light. But there's others of God's creation like roaches that do not love the light. I am not in any way comparing Christians with mosquitoes who are blood-sucking insects with, with, um, with Christians, and I'm not comparing unbelievers to roaches, disgusting, filthy roaches. But you can do with that as you wish. The truth, though, is that we can hate the light or we can come into the light. So as you are witnessing, you're trying to bring light into their lives. And there's the darkness in them that repels them. See, that's why when we move on here, it says, even though they saw the miracles, they still did not believe in him. Why is that? That is the question. And John's answer is not a happy one. But when we understand it, I think we're going to find some hope in it. He actually tells us, right there in verse 40, God has blinded their eyes. He has deadened their hearts. What? Why would God do that? Now, I need to clarify some things here. The Old Testament does this much more than the New Testament. Talks about how God does certain things. When at face value, we may not quite understand it. For example, if you were to turn to Job 42, you don't need to do that. But do you remember what happened to Job? Remember, he lost all 10 of his children. Their house collapsed on them because of a whirlwind, a tornado. For Job, he lost all all of his possessions. He was wealthy, lost it all overnight. And then to top it off, 
he comes down with these boils or whatever exactly they are, probably some sort of skin irritation all over his body. And, and my heart goes out to Mary, who has to deal with this much more than all of us. But have you ever had something that itched or hurt and you tried to, and just constantly, constantly, and you tried to sleep at night? can't sleep. You do that for a couple of nights and you can't sleep. You are the most irritable person on the face of planet earth. Call me when it's all over. The truth though, no, I'm going to pray for you, but then call me. But the truth though is it's, you're miserable and Job is miserable. Here's what, here's what Job 42 says. God brought all of these calamities upon Job. That's how the Old Testament words it. Remember, this is Old Testament. God brought all of these calamities upon Job. Why would, did you, have you ever read chapter one? You're just scratching your head. Wait a second, back up 41 chapters to chapter one. Who is it that afflicted Job? Because it wasn't God, it was who? Satan. But God who is sovereign over all permitted Satan to do that. Even so, that may lessen the blow let me just say it real plainly. God permitted Satan to kill all ten of Job's children. Wow. I mean, that might soften the blow a bit, but like, God, why would you do that? Now, the immediate answer that the book of Job does talk about is that God has this overarching plan and he's going to bring about an ultimate good. That lessens the blow a little. But what parent, and, and I'm just being gut level honest with you, church, what parent would say, okay, God, as long as it's for my ultimate good, take all my kids. Now, maybe depending on... Um, how the kids have been behaving that week, maybe that might determine your answer. But the truth is no parent would say, okay, if it's going to work out for my good, take them, sure. No. Wow. That might even embitter people. God, you did that just for my good? Why would you do that? I would much rather them live than me. Can I just share with you that from God's perspective, even though he shares only one or two reasons in the book of Job, I would venture, I guess, there's probably more than a hundred reasons that he just doesn't tell us. One of those may be the fact that his children, when they partied, they were beginning to delve into sin. And one of two things could have happened. If they chose not to repent, they're grown children. They don't live in Job's house anymore. They're on their own now. Job did what he could in raising them. They're on their own. And scripture says that after they had a party, that Job would pray for them and even make a sacrifice just in case they sinned. So what if? They did sin. What if they got caught in this sin and they bore the consequences of that sin? Let's say they completely walked away from God. Completely walked away from God. And they then bore the judgment of God's wrath 
on that great judgment day, never to spend eternity with him. How does that affect God taking or allowing their life to be taken? God, thank you that you took their life before they turned away from you. Is that not true? I mean, horrible that their life had to end, but better that than live the rest of their life walking away from God. Or maybe they don't walk away from God, but for the rest of their life, they go deeper and deeper into sin and they bear horrible, horrible consequences for their sin. Maybe to the point where their sin gets them involved in gangs, they murder several people, spend the rest of their life in jail, miserable. You know what prison life can be like. You've seen enough TV shows. But the truth, though, is maybe if they were never to turn back to the Lord, and I'm not saying that they apostatized, but they just, they were caught in their sin. Wow. Maybe to save them from these horrible consequences, maybe that was best to just take their life. I don't know. I'm speaking hypothetically here. Because God didn't allow that to happen. He, he did end up taking their life. And that seems so cruel, but God did not tell us the other 98 reasons why he did it. You see? And when we get angry with God... Because he's sovereign and he allows these things in our life. We can get angry. Why would you do that? Well, he's not telling you the other 98 reasons. Maybe one day in your life he'll tell you one or two, but not the other 98. Can you trust him that he really does know best? That's hard. That's hard. My point, though, is to say that technically God blinded their eyes. Theologians use the term secondary agency. Job is an example of secondary agency. Did God bring calamity upon Job? Yes, he did, but he did it through Satan. So here's the question. If God didn't just by his own self reach down and blind their eyes on his own accord with his own power, then how did he do it? He did it through their sin. See, when you were a sinner... You were blinded. Now, if you remember Romans 1, do you remember that chapter? It says in, in verse 18, it says that the wrath of God is revealed against all who do wickedness and by that wickedness suppress the truth. That truth is that in all of creation, we can see God and we can see clearly enough that God is good, he is super smart, he is super good, super loving, but there is something, excuse me, broken in this creation, and I can see it in my life. So I'm not going to accuse God, but there's something wrong with me, his creation that sins, that wants to be angry, that sometimes even has murderous thoughts. Something's broken in this creation, and I'm a part of that problem. So how do I have this relationship with this God that created me? See, creation tells us that much. The answer to that problem is only found in the gospel. It's not found in creation. It's only found in the gospel. It's found in the testimony of your light that shines. 
in the darkness. But because of their darkness, because of their sin, they didn't want to come into the light. Their wickedness suppressed this truth. No, there is no God because see, if there is, I have to repent and I have to give up my darkness for his light and I don't want to do that. And so they suppress this truth because of the wickedness in their heart. So do you remember what God does? Because this is the wrath of God that's revealed. It's this. He gives them over to their sin. You don't want to listen to me. You don't want to follow me. You want to even deny that there is a God or that I am a God. You're going to turn to some idol and worship it. He says, if you don't follow me, I'm going to give you over to your sexual immorality. That's the first time that's mentioned. The second one is people involved in homosexuality. And he eventually gives them over to their homosexuality. Now, before we start looking at sexual sin and sexual and homosexuality as like, wow, those are like the two worst sins. And we know it because when you do that, God gives you over to that sin. There's a third one. And that third one, if you were to look at it, is not listed in one sentence a verse. It takes many verses to list all of those sins, like parent haters and God haters and those who love money. You do that, and you just keep running back to your sin, your vomit. Okay, I'm going to give you over to it. Now, here is my question. Here is my question. Why does God do this? Why does God do this? He gives us a peek at the answer in Romans 2. I'm not going to look at that. I'm going to tell you about it. But imagine this. That when you're involved in sin and you just refuse to come into the light. Someone has shared the gospel with you many times, and maybe at this point, God begins to give you over to your sin more and more. Do you know why? It's so that you will come to this realization, my sin is ugly. My sin has consequences. And you begin to struggle with the bondage of sin in your life and its consequences, and you feel like you're being smothered. You're suffocating. You're drowning in your sin, in your lust, in your anger, your bitterness, and there is no help. You try over and over to get out of it, and you can't do it. And you're wearied by your sin. All the while, God has given you over to your sin. But you know what chapter 2 says? Listen to me. Here's what it says. The kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance. I'm going to word it this way. In that giving you over to your sin, the world over to their sin, God always allows some of his kindness here and there. I've not given up on you. I'm still chasing you. I so loved the world, I gave my only son. I'm still coming after you. Are you still sinning? I'm going to give you over to your sin, but I'm going to give you some kindness here. Do you see my kindness? I've not left you. It might feel that way because you're wallowing in your own sin and its own consequences. I've not left you. I'm still here. Here's my kindness. And when the world recognizes the cesspool that their sin is, and yet still the goodness of God, that is God's invitation to repent. 
do you see this? God still loves, he's still calling, but you're going to sin. You have to experience the consequences of that sin to the point where you hate it enough to say, I give up. I surrender. The key here, though, is who do you surrender to? Because when you surrender to Jesus, the Bible calls that faith. I give up. I can't do this anymore. The wrath of God has been revealed in my life. I've suppressed the truth for so long. I am so tired of my sin. I'm wearied by it. And yet I see elements of his grace, his mercy, his kindness. I will now run to the Father. And the Father is drawing you to himself all the while. The Bible says in Acts 17, 27, he, he, in verse 26, it talks about how God created all nations through one man. And why did he create all the nations? Here's what verse 27 says. So that man, that is man lost in his sin, so that man would, follow me, seek God and perhaps reach out to him and find him. There is within the heart of man though he is God's enemy, when God initiates that grace and he begins to woo him, there is that desire then for man to seek God. He begins to recognize his kindness. He begins to listen to the Father and learn from him. And everyone who does comes to Jesus. That's what we call God's effectual call. Everyone he calls with that effectual call and that drawing and the listening and learning to every one of them comes to Jesus. Now we can fight and scream and kick our heels and even walk away before that. That's called God's general call. But God with his special call, his specific call, spoke to each of you and drew you and that's why you're even here today. Out of his dark, out of your own darkness, into his light. So when it says here that God blinded their eyes, he permitted their sin to so corrupt the way they, so that they can't see, the way they think, the way they behave, everything about them is now controlled and in bondage by their sin. In this way, God blinded their eyes. In this way, God gave them over, okay? But he tells us it this way, he deadened their hearts. He permitted that. Now look at verse 41. Excuse me one second. Let me back up. I want to use just an illustration here. It's a pleasant one for me. But have you ever liked something so much that you overindulged in it? I've done that. Uh, I grew up with my mom regularly making banana pudding. My wife does this. Sometimes Juliana will do this. But they may, on Father's Day, what do you want for Father's Day for dessert? You know what I want. It is banana pudding. Now, banana pudding, the right way you do it is you line the bowl with vanilla wafers. Okay? Tracking me now? You put your vanilla pudding, sometimes banana pudding, sometimes butterscotch pudding. That can work too, but vanilla pudding. With bananas, like all in there. 
and then like tons of whipped cream on top. That is the way you make banana pudding. There is no other way. And my wife and my daughter will make this for me. And I will, I'll, st- I'll be so patient, I'll scoop out like just a, not an overflowing bowl, but a bowl of banana pudding. Oh, man. And this is after eating dinner. And they have cooked a lot for me for dinner. Oh, that was too, I, gotta, I have to have another bowl. So I go in there, and I'm not going to do too much, and I get another bowl. And I eat that while we're watching maybe a movie or something, and I'm done. It's like, is so good. I think I have a little empty space right about here. I'm going to get me another bowl of banana pudding. And I go back into the kitchen during a commercial. I'll get another bowl and I'll sit there. And by the time I'm done that bowl, I am so nauseated and I'm so frustrated with myself. And I'm thinking, you fool, why did you eat a third bowl? And I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I just did. I loved it but to the point where I began to hate it. Now, the problem with that is, number one, I I ruined my evening by now. I go to bed, I'm feeling sick, but I probably won't eat banana pudding. Next Father's Day, Dad, what do you want? It's not going to be banana pudding because I still remember how sick I was. You see, when you wallow in your sin, oh, it it feels so, so good until you begin to bear its consequences and it makes you sick. And that's... God's goal. He wants you sick of your sin, sprinkled in with some of his kindness to get your attention so that you seek God. Perhaps reach out to him and find him. If you're a Christian, can I suggest that though God treats you differently, he will in a way give you over to your sin with the same purpose. He will discipline you many times for you to taste your sin until it's repugnant to you. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians what Paul says? He says, okay, here's what you do. The brother who just he calls himself a brother, but he refuses to repent. He's going to live in his sin and he is not, he's just going to stay in his sin. You've challenged him. You've called him to repentance. He won't do it. Oh, maybe next week, maybe a year from now. We'll see, but not right now. I'm sorry, this was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother that even the Gentiles don't do. Paul says, put him out of your church. Just put him out. And here's what you need to do. You turn his flesh over to Satan so that Perhaps on the day of judgment, his soul will be saved. Because maybe he truly is a Christian. And by turning him over to Satan and having nothing to do with him, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? But this is God's remedy for those who are persistent and stubborn in their sin and refuse to repent. You turn them over to Satan and you let him deal with them. And oh, trust me, they will. He will. And that Christian will suffer the consequences of their sin, hopefully to the point in which they repent and they say, I don't want this in my life anymore. And I'm going to suggest that is what happened to this gentleman in 1 Corinthians 5, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is saying, welcome this brother back. He's repented. Don't let him wallow in his remorse. 
That is the degree to which this man repented. He was wallowing in his remorse. I would love to see the day in which Christians wallow in remorse over their sin. Wow. That it's not just, oh, (laughs) yeah, adultery, a little bit of a mistake. I'm sorry. Well, let's just, come on, let's just move on with life. You just don't understand what you just did. Yeah, I'm sorry, God, I I did that and I I, I totally abandoned you, but I'm back and, and we're good, right? Where's the remorse? I think God just wants us to grieve over our sin, not to wallow in it, but church, to understand what that sin is. Have we forgotten? That's the sin, remember, Jesus died on the cross for? God died on the cross for that. And so this man came to that place where he he was so grieved with his sin and he repented. And his soul will be saved on the day of judgment because he turned back to the Lord and he did not continue down that deceptive pathway of sin to just eventually completely and forever turn away from the Lord. This is actually the heart of God. Now, I'm going to tell you, because he wraps this up by saying in verse 40, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I want to conclude with this. God has called you out of the darkness. He's invited you into his light. Why would you want to walk in the darkness ever again? Think about what that was like. Don't go back there. Those who go back there, 2 Peter 2, he says they're like dogs who eat their own vomit. They're also like sows that have been washed. They go back to wallowing in the mud. And I get it. That is their nature. It's also in the nature of dogs to love their vomit. I don't get it. It has never been on my menu. Dogs don't mind it. They eat other things too that I won't get into. But the truth is, why would we want to do that? Church, we have been called out of darkness to display his light to this world. And many of them are going to run from your light. Many of them are going to run from the testimony of Christ in you, but please don't give up on them because Jesus didn't give up on you. He pursued you. Pursue them. Run after them. Pray for them. Cry out for more opportunities to share light with them. Because perhaps God in his kindness, in giving them over to their sin, they will hate it. And as they see the kindness of God in their lives, and maybe even through you, they will come to Jesus. They will seek God and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Because right now the world is lost in darkness. And apart from your light, they cannot save. Apart from the light of the Gospels, they cannot save. Can you stand with me? May God grant us a greater desire to shine our light in this dark world that they might be saved, that they might turn back to him. So Father, I I just ask you, Lord, that you would... Take these words 
of your of your scriptures and that you would plant them in our heart and that you would show every single one of us how that this word is supposed to affect us this week. Grant us wisdom, understanding, open our eyes to how we might speak and act differently this week to shine that light. We believe that we become sons of light. And though you've left now, we are the light. May we shine so brightly in this dark universe. And may many, as a result of our us have been caught up in our own darkness. Oh God, I pray, turn us back to you. Call us, officially call us back to yourself to abandon that darkness and that old way of life we've turned back to. God, you've called us out of that. Turned over to our sin, you still showed us God.